I want to welcome everyone who's joining to the third in the series of ethnobotany webinars um, that are put on by the American Botanical Council and Sustainable Herbs Program. I would love to turn to today's presentation with um, Dr. Plotkin, who probably needs no introduction from me, um, but I'll say a few words. Um, Mark Plotkin is a renowned ethnobotanist who studied traditional indigenous plant use with elder healers in Central and South America for more than 30 years. He's an award-winning activist who has worked with many conservation organizations. And what to me is one of the most exciting parts of um, Mark's work is co-founding the Amazon conservation team with his wife Liliana in 1996. An Amazon conservation team is dedicated to protecting the biological and cultural diversity of the Amazon. Um, Dr. Plotkin is also the author of many papers and articles. Um, and again, one of my favorite was the child's version of Tales of the Shaman's Apprentice, which I read. Um, and I'm thrilled to be able to speak with him today about his most recent book, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know. So thank you very much and welcome. Thank you, Anne. It's great to be here. I'd like to thank the American Botanical Council, Mark Blumenthal, who always assembles a, a crack team around him, and the Sustainable Herbs Program. I think I've, I've been able to e-attend every lecture so far. I'm glad to see other colleagues like uh, Nancy Turnaway, David Steve King coming up, and I'll be tuned in then as well. So I'm also uh, pleased to see so many people signing in from around the world. It's very flattering, although I guess we can't go anywhere else. But uh, let's take it from the top. I want to take rather a different tack for a, a talk on the Amazon. I want to start in the ancient world. So if uh, my colleague Antonio Peluso here at the Amazon Conservation Team, and I want to point out before we get into things that everything I'm going to say can be found on our website, amazonteam.org, or some of the more esoteric things on my personal website, markplotkin.com. So from Peru to Pompeii, here we go. First slide, please. So I want to talk about what most of us want to talk about, which is the Amazon, the plants, the peoples, the fungi, the animals that are used for healing purposes. The irony here is that we're burning the candle at both ends. Literally, the Amazon is burning down faster than ever before. At the same time, we're coming to appreciate uh, the value of Amazonia, other rainforests, other temperate forests, uh, marine species in terms of their curative properties. And I'll be talking about that next. But just to start out, I'd like to ask a, a question of everybody, which is the most valuable medicinal plant in the world? Because this is sort of a trick question and very few people get it right. Next. In this fabulous Stephen Foster photo, cannabis. It's a billion dollar industry and growing by leaps and bounds, legally and illegally. The second most common answer when I ask people, what's the most important medicinal plant in the world? What's the most valuable medicinal plant in the world? Next is the opium poppy, once again, legal and illegal, heroin, morphine, all of those things. And neither of those answers are correct because I've costed this out. Here's the most valuable medicinal plant in the world. Next, the wine grape. Wine is worth $300 billion a year, billion with a B. Even to the state of California, it's worth $30 billion. And let me make my point on why I consider this the most valuable medicinal plant. Next. Wine through the course of history and probably through the course of prehistory has served as a calmative, 
a soporific that is a sleep inducer, an anesthetic, and an antimicrobial. Now, this is a very important point in terms of the antimicrobial aspects, because many people attribute this to alcohol. Alcohol does kill microbes, but more importantly, and this has been proven by my late colleague Guido Maginal, uh, it's the polyphenols, first and foremost, which is why you see so many early accounts of wine being used as a wound dressing more than beer and meat, which were alcoholic beverages invented around the same time. Next. And when I mentioned this to my good friend, Jane Goodall, she says, you know, wine didn't start with, with Greece in Rome. It didn't even start with the human species. She says, in fact, uh, my, my chimps like to get snockered. My chimps seek out next. Marula fruit in Africa. This is an anacards uh, related to poison ivy, related to uh, the, the mango and elephants and other mammals and birds seek this out when it's ripe and fermented and alcoholic. And I was able to, with the help of Antonio, track down some films of what happens to animals when they drink too much or eat too much fermented marula fruit. Next. <laughs> so we're not the only species that engages in uh, inducing altered states due to plant products. And also, of course, we now know that animals use medicinal plants as well, not just mind-altering plants. Uh, this really is a, a whole science itself, zoopharmacist by people like Jane Goodall and Richards and other medicinal plants. Next. So let's move ahead in time to a couple of thousand years ago and see how we know what plants were used in the ancient world. These are the ruins of King Midas's tomb. King Midas really did exist and he had a tomb in Turkey and it was excavated in the 50s by a Turkish team along with the University of Pennsylvania. Next. And this is my colleague, Pat McGovern of the University of Pennsylvania who really is the shining figure in this field who went down to the basement, scraped some of the schmutz out of the bottom of these pots and was able to actually reconstruct what people at Midas's funerary feast and other parts of the ancient world were actually able to consume. Next, even managed to create King Midas's ale with the Dogfish Head Brewery uh, in homage to uh, King Midas, next. Here's why this is important, but we now look at all of these ancient ruins and look for uh, leavings and figure out what plants and what mind altering plants and what medicinal plants they were using. This is, of course, Pompeii. What people need to remember is Pompeii was the epicenter of the wine trade in the ancient world. It was the main source of wine. Next. And if you go to Pompeii, there's innumerable engravings and carvings and figures devoted to wine grapes and the wine trade. Next. 
Pompeii was a small place, but there were over a hundred wine bars found throughout the village and the surrounding region. Next. But here's where the ethnobotany comes in, in a really intriguing way. This is a famous painting from the Villa of the Mysteries. This is an account of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which ethnobotany, ethnobotanists have puzzled over for years. Uh, Gordon Wasson took a crack at this, Carl Rook took a crack, uh, a, a crack at figuring out what was going on, and they concluded it was entheogenic, uh, hallucinogenic plants and fungi. Next. And here's my colleague, Brian Mororescu, who just wrote a fabulous book, next. Which I highly recommend, where he went back and re-examined all of these findings. He's a linguist originally, now a lawyer, oddly enough, and was able to conclusively prove, in my opinion, that yes, the Eleusinian mysteries were based on hallucinogenic compounds. And yes, that the Eucharist of the early church uh, included mind-altering compounds. And it's a fascinating story. And I, I really hope ABC will invite him to do one of these seminars because this is a story that needs to be told to the rest of our community in, in much greater detail. Next, the important thing is what it shows to me at least is that human culture, human religion, human spirituality is inextricably aligned with these natural products, these entheogenic hallucinogenic products and that's where many of the mysteries and wonders and spirituality and accessing hidden recesses of the human mind uh, come into play. Next, here we are in Amazonia. And as I said, or as you heard the introduction from Anne, I've just come out with a new book, The Amazon, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I think we've all been a bit frustrated by seeing how much information is out there on the Amazon and how much of it is really not very good, contradictory. The Amazon is not the lungs of the earth. The Amazon does not produce 80% of the uh, pharmaceutical drugs we find in the drugstore. I wanted to set the record straight. Next. But when I did an interview for Mangabay, mangabay.com, which is the best rainforest sites, I was asked, what are the three or four things you learned? You've been working in the Amazon a long time. What did you learn that you did not know? Well, here's one of the first things that I found was that we now know there's a coral reef at the mouth of the Amazon. That was only discovered a couple of years ago. Next. A giant cobalt blue tarantula was found in Guyana in the Northern Amazon a couple of years ago. So when people say, oh, we've already found everything in nature and so what, we find a few more beetles. This is a giant cobalt blue tarantula. If we can still find stuff like this, imagine what's still out there. Next. Electric eels, another good example. Electric eels have been studied for hundreds of years. Linnaeus described the first electric eel over 250 years ago. Volta was inspired by the electric eel in, in his creation and invention of the first battery. And last year, we found two new species of electric eels. <clears throat> These are eight foot long slabs of meat that shoot out electric shocks, kind of hard to miss. And we found one of the species produces 20% more electricity than we Im imagined possible. And scientists are now looking at the electric eel to figure out how to make tiny uh, electric batteries that they can implant in the human body to provide uh, longer power to things like pacemakers. So even in the oldest, best known organism, we're still finding new and useful uses and inspiration. Next. Two new species found just last year. 
Next. And many people who visit the Amazon for the first time assume this is the largest tree in the Amazon, the ubiquitous Kapok or, or, or Saba tree. Uh, but there's a legume that grows larger, Denizia, Denizia excelsa. And just last year, in the Jari drainage of, of the Northeast Amazon, near where I work, they found the tallest tree ever in the Amazon. It was Denizia, 88 feet taller than the tallest known tree in the Amazon. That's almost 100 feet taller. Remember, we live in a world when world records are broken. They're broken by a couple of seconds or a couple of centimeters. This is 100 feet taller, which once again, to me, is emblematic of how much we don't know and how much there remains to be learned. Next. Now, I've been doing this a long time. I started doing ethnobotanical research with the trios in the Northeast Amazon in 1982. Next. And I'm still at it. This is with a YY colleague in 1983 or 84. Next. Same two guys, same pose over 30 years later. And I showed this to a friend of mine and she said, well, your notebook's gotten a lot bigger. Go back one, Antonio. And I said, yeah, well, as the brain shrinks, the net, net notebook needs to grow larger. Next. And so I think that the real secret sauce of, of, of ethnobotany is not really any different than the secret sauce in working with any different culture. It takes time. It takes time to build relationships up. This is me in the Northeast Amazon about a year and a half ago with uh, two chiefs from the Brazilian trios. Now the guy in the middle with the big smile is uh, Chief uh, uh, Paikai, who, um, I, I started working with in 1982. And next to him, next to Kapai is his brother Aretino. Now, now the first guy invited me to this gathering of the chiefs and the shamans. There weren't very many outsiders, but it took me four days to get to the village. And as I was talking to him, his brother, the fellow on the right came walking up and he looked at me and he said, I haven't seen you in 32 years. He said, you were my father's friend. When I heard you were going to be here, I traveled five days to be here. I mean, this is the kind of bonds that are necessary to really work in true partnership with people, particularly in other cultures. Next. Now, I got started on this path in working with uh, the, the, the great Richard Evan Schulte is often called the father of ethnobotany. When you walked into Schulte's office, these two pictures were, were behind him and over his shoulders. On the left were these two yukunas taking snuff, and on the right was Chiribiquete, the most spectacular corner of Amazonia. And remember these pictures, because I'll be talking about them again. The point here being, what Schulte says is you couldn't just work with empowering cultures to protect themselves, you couldn't just protect nature. It was this biocultural approach that combined the best of the two. And that's been the guiding light for the Amazon conservation team since the 25 year inception of the organization. Next. 
And we've captured Schulte's incredible story uh, in what we call a storybook map. This is an interactive uh, internet feature. You really have to see this to, to really understand the wonder of it. This is really the, the brainchild of uh, Brian Hetler, our, one of our ace cartographers. And he drew on all sorts of sources, Schulte's notebooks, uh, unpublished material, uh, biographies by in the Green Medicine, the one by Wayne Davis, and really combined this into an extraordinary uh, storytelling uh, vehicle. Next. And this is what it looks like. On the left, you see the illustration that went along with the description of Yokel, one of the sacred grails that Schultes was in search of and found. On the right, you see the distribution map uh, where we now know Yoko to grow. Next. And on the left, you see one of Schultes' photos of the Kofan tribe that he lived with for many years. When he, he loved those people dearly. On the right is a picture I took a few years ago of them preparing Yoko. Yoko is a sapendaceous liana that they drink for two purposes, which is one is a stimulant. Uh, the other is to keep away malaria. Now I've taken Yoko with the Kofan and what happens is it's such an incredible stimulant. The tips of your fingers start to tingle. It's also an emetic, you vomit, and then you spend the whole day. Uh, you don't get hungry, you don't get tired. It's really one of the most miraculous plants I've ever interacted with. Next. More importantly, at the request of the Kofans, the Amazon conservation team worked in partnership with them and with the Colombian government to create the Orito Ingi Andi Medicinal Plant Floral Sanctuary. In other words, this is a protected area created at the behest of the Indians to protect first and foremost uh, this sacred plant but to create a whole new category of protector, not just a national park, but something that recognized both the material and the immaterial heritage of this culture. And this is conservation in about nine different uh, dimensions. And it is co-managed between the, the, the government and the, um, and the people themselves. Next. It was set up in 2008, and it protects 400 square miles of some of the most pristine and biodiverse uh, rainforest anywhere on earth. And these are the Kofans smiling like jack-o'-lantern is the creation of the reserve. And this can be found on our website, amazonteam.org. And there's additional information on my personal website, markplotkin.com. So I'll give these links again at the end. I, I see people are writing and saying, what are the links? And be sure you look at these storybook maps, and there's several of them that are germane to what I'm going to be talking about today. Be sure you look at them on a, on a laptop, not on your phone, because you won't be able to take advantage of all the links and the bells and the whistles. Next. And this is the great Schultes himself in the Sibandoy Valley. The Sibandoy Valley, also known as the Valley of the Hallucinogens. On the left is a gentleman I call the first shaman. This is Salvador Chindoy. He is the Kamsa shaman who taught Schultes ayahuasca and in a sense taught it to the world. And I'm very proud to report that ACT with our incredible Northwest Amazon team uh, has worked with the Kams tribes in Sibandoy to protect this area, which is the headwaters of the
in a major affluent coming out of the Andes and down to the Amazon. Next. Schulte's described this plant in the Botanical Museum leaflets, which were printed on a very primitive printing press uh, in the basement of the museums, probably read by the 37 people who subscribed to the museum leaflets. But ayahuasca has taken over the world. Ayahuasca ceremonies are offered on the internet from Israel to Istanbul to Indonesia. This once obscure liana has spread throughout the world. Next. So part of what we're doing at the Amazon Conservation Team is working with the original Yahe cultures in the Northwest Amazon. You see this great picture of Yahe by my buddy, Stephen Foster, who takes the best botanical portraits of anybody on the planet. You see Yahe in flower, which you very seldom see in the rainforest. It has a tool in the hands of Western physicians as well, because the mainstreaming of these entheogenic substances, be it Yahe or psilocybin um, mushrooms, which were two Schultes by the Mazatex in, in Mexico, or the mescaline from the peyote, which was taught to Schultes by the Kiowas in Oklahoma. There's now an institute set up at Johns Hopkins and similar efforts underway at UCLA, at Yale, I think NYU, to these hallucinogenic plants to treat and sometimes cure uh, so-called incurable ailments. Now, this comes a great surprise to the Western medical establishment, comes to no surprise to any ethnobotanist, and even less to any uh, real shaman. Next. Don Luciano Matumbahoy of the Ingano people there in the Columbia Piedmont, the eastern slope of the Andes, in the middle of an ayahuasca session. And as I said, this once obscure liana has become so popular so widely used in some sense abused, it's even made the ultimate uh, Western, uh, re received the ultimate Western stamp of approval. Next. A headline in the onion. Next. And one of the things we have found since uh, Schulte's passing is that it's not just plants uh, or fungi used for hallucinogenic purposes. This is the magic frog, the green monkey frog. And I could give an hour lecture on, on this, which I won't. But again, now this is available all over the world, sold on the internet as compote. And these are very different compounds. These are not the alkaloids that we find in most plants and fungi that are uh, these mind altering substances. Next. So to reach a broader audience with this, you know, my kids told me that the TED Talks and the Today Show, all that stuff uh, I grew up with are, are, are passe. And the name of the game these days is podcasts if you want to reach a broader audience. So the Amazon Conservation Team is putting together a podcast called Plants of the Gods. There you see Xochipilli, the Mexican god of hallucinations and flowers, holding an ayahuasca vine. And we will do a segment on ayahuasca, another on the magic frog, another on opium, to cover all these things from an ethnobotanical perspective, quite different from any podcast out there on entheogenic substances. This will be launched next month. So check out our website for more information. But I hope all of you fellow psychonauts will be tuning in. Next. 
So the, the, the final third of the presentation or before we get to the questions is how we're dealing with these Amazonian issues. What are the major threats? And I just spent three years pouring through these and putting the book together. Obviously, number one is COVID-19. Cattle ranching, hydroelectric dams, gold mining, large-scale agriculture, logging and fire. The Amazon is being hammered as never before. Next. Amazon fires numbered over 70,000 in Brazil alone. Remember the Amazon reaches its leafy tendrils, not just into Brazil, but into nine countries. So Brazil is not the be all and end all of Amazonia. It's certainly the largest part, about 66%. But there were thousands of these fires and they spread into other countries and they even spread into dry forests as well. Next. These terrible stories dominated the headlines throughout the world last year. Next. Undertold in terms of these stories was the impact on indigenous communities. And to some degree, uh, it impacted forests inhabited by uncontacted peoples as well. Next. But again, one of the, 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 the terrible aspects of, of COVID is that the mortality rate is double that in indigenous people that it is in, in the rest of the puppies. And we've already lost some of the most incredible uh, indigenous leaders of all time to this terrible disease. Next. My beloved friend Santo Sana of the Kogis in Northern Colombia, Paya Khan of the Kayapo in Brazil, uh, Aritana Yawalapiti of the Xingu in Brazil who helped us with our early mapping efforts. And the, this continues to roll through. So we're not just talking about a biological disaster and what's going on in the Amazon, we're talking about a biocultural disaster as well. And in other parts of the world, even here in the US where it's decimating groups like the Navajo and the Hopi as well. Next. So in trying to figure out how best to help these people, I mean, we firmly believe at ACT that if you wanna protect the forest, you have to help the people protect themselves and the forest. What are the emergency needs to help these communities help themselves. Sanitary and medical supplies, emergency food aid, healthcare information in the tribal language. And I'm very proud of the fact that ACT to date in the last seven months has delivered over 35 tons, 35 tons of assistance to our indigenous colleagues and much more remains to be done. Next. So very briefly, our strategic directions in terms of addressing not only COVID, but the deforestation crisis rests on three pillars. The first is land and forests and rivers. The second is sustainable livelihood, so people can stay in the forest if so choose, but still have some money to buy the outside goods that they need. And finally, governance. So these people are not only able to, to you know, rule themselves as modernity presses in from all sides, but also to deal with the outside world in an effective manner. Next. The legalization has been absolutely fundamental. This is basically land titling. Our Northwest Amazon program under the leadership of, of Carolina Hugh has really been as effective as any group anywhere in the tropical world that I know of. Um, we've done four indigenous reserves. There'll be more uh, before the end of the year. I can't talk too much about it, 
but uh, there's more good news in the pipeline thanks to this incredible group of people in partnership with their indigenous colleagues and in partnership with like-minded people in the local government as well. Next. Capacity building is absolutely fundamental. Here you see my uh, beloved colleague, Daniela Aristizabal, um, at the computer working on mapping exercises with local tribes people. He's our point man for the protection of the uh, isolated peoples of the Northwest Amazon. Next. Fundamental to the success of our work has been indigenous mapping. We started with one tribe, one sub-tribe in one village 20 years ago, the trios. And, and, and look at the semiotics of this picture carefully, okay? Who's making the map? It's not ACT, that's our cartographer with the t-shirt. It was the indigenous peoples making the map and us uh, cheering them on, training them, funding them, but ultimately it's helping them take control of their own environmental and cultural destiny. This picture is the perfect combination of indigenous wisdom and 21st century uh, technology. Next. All this information was in their head. All this information is now on paper and computer and they possess it, not us. Next. This is, a, I call this our ACT Where's Waldo photo. Uh, Waldo with the upper left is Brian Hetler, uh, our, one of our crack cartographers. The storybook idea was his, and he has been working with the Kogi now for years. He's the most traditional and spiritual people I've ever met living in the Sierra Nevada in Northern uh, Colombia, but they've been our spiritual guides and have helped us work even better with our Amazonian colleagues. So thank you, Brian, and the rest of the Columbia team, and especially the Kogis and the three other tribes of the Sierra who are really some of the most valuable partners we've ever had. Next. One other thing we've been very focused on at ACT is building bridges. Okay, indigenous peoples seldom have positive working relationships with other peoples around them. That's uh, kind of, a, uh, it's an overstatement, but it's a, like my, many generalizations is true in a lot of ways. Uh, this on the left is Natala, one of the paramount shamans of the trios. And Anne was kind enough to mention my children's book with Lynn Cherry. Uh, Natala was the protagonist. And next to him is Johannes, a Saramakana Maroon, the Maroons are descendants of escaped slaves. Now these people inhabit central Suriname. They have a lot more political power than the Indians of the far South. But through our mapping work, we have been able to create partnerships that really didn't exist between the native peoples of the South and the semi-indigenous peoples in the central region. And we think this is fundamental to helping all of these forest peoples, indigenous and otherwise, take better control of their destiny. Next. And this is one of my favorite pictures of all time. This is with the Matawai Maroon tribe in central Suriname. And here's why I love this picture. On the left in the blue shirt, you see Minu Parahu, our Northeast Amazon director. She is a Surinamese uh, native uh, descendant of Hindustan, Hindustani uh, ancestors, teaching mapping to the Matawai descendants of African ancestors in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. It doesn't get any more multicultural than this. Next. Extremely important to this work has been the realization that women hold a different landscape in their mind. And one of the great things about this technology is it allows these people to learn about technology in a way which 
undergirds the, the culture, which helps them document the culture rather than seeing as some sort of trinket that lures people away from honoring their own traditions. And I have to say that, that Minu and Carolina and Liliana have been key in, in spearheading our efforts with, with tribal uh, women across the Amazon. Next. And there's another storybook map. This is the greatest thing on the Afro-American diaspora since roots and, and in some ways might even be greater. This is done by the Matawai people in partnership with Rudo Kemper, another one of our great ethno-cartographers. And you guys really got to promise me you're going to look at this on a real computer when we're done because this is just a spectacular story told in a spectacular fashion, honoring traditions and documenting traditions. Next. Now, a major focus for us are uncontacted people. This is an aquario. They were dragged out of the forest by the missionaries in the 60s and 70s, and between 40 and 80% of the people were dead within two years. This is another lecture. I, I, I hope that Glenn Shepard can talk more about the Aslados when he does a session, but I've been working with these people for 30 years. Next. We estimate that there are still 70 uncontacted or isolated or people living in voluntary isolation in the Amazon, primarily in the Western Amazon, primarily in the Northwest Amazon. And we're trying to find ways to protect them. And here's more, here's another recipe for secret sauce. You want to protect uncontacted people? Don't contact them. Work with contact peoples around who are more than happy to accept the help to protect further in living at the headwaters who've chosen not to interact with the outside world. Next. And here is the realization of some of that work. On the right, you see Carolina Hill, the director of our Northwest Amazon program. Uh, the white guy in the middle is President Santos of Colombia. He's taken a few years ago. He was a very environmentally minded fellow and a real ally to environmentalists. And Liliana, our co-founder, smiling as a result of seeing a decree signed to protect the uncontacted peoples in their forest. And on the left, Minister Movillo, the environment minister at the time, it was a real partnership between cultures to make this happen. The point I want to make here is that protecting uncontacted peoples, protecting uncontacted forests is not about signing degrees. It's about making maps, about working in partnership, it's about empowering local people. And it's about working of the political world as well. You can't do one without the other. Next. Another very positive development, positive development is the training, equipping of indigenous parkered forests. Now, there's lots of good ideas about how to save the rainforest. It's real hard to do it. This is an indigenous park guard ranger program. The Amazon conservation team founded 10 years ago. And these fellows are still combing the rainforest and they've got the best of the outside world, the walkie talkies, the GPSs, uh, and the best of the indigenous world in their hearts, minds, and souls. And once again, they're protecting their own culture and their own forest, which is the way it should be. And think how important it is to control the borders and gauge over. Been running for a day. That is proof of concept. Next. And here are the park guards using the maps. Once again, it's 
growing these types of efforts together because in isolation, not mapping, not park guards, not uh, non-timber products is gonna be as successful when you have an integrated holistic, which is ultimately shamanistic approach. Next. And this is, as an ethnobotanist, one of the things I'm proudest of. I went down there to write down a list of their medicinal plants. I quickly realized that wasn't gonna do it. And we, in full partnership with the trios themselves, we set up the Katamuima Epipakoro, the, the, the Katamuima Medicinal Liana Plant Medicine House, essentially a hospital. 2000, 20 years ago, it's still functioning. Next. So not only was it a Pananakiri, a, a foreigner, a white person writing this stuff down, they are making the medicines. Next. They are treating the patients using traditional medicine. And one of the things I'm, I'm also very proud of, next, is that in the age of COVID, uh, they have keeping the outside world out. This is a workshop done with the Maroons as part of the bridge building exercise, where the Maroons are teaching them about their medicine and the Amerindians are teaching the Maroons their medicine. And there's a pioneering study that's been done about this, comparing these two very different tribal groups in terms of their ethnobotany by Bruce Hoffman. This is one of the most important studies ever done in the Amazon, which is why I'm hoping you guys will invite him to give one of these webinars. Next. But here's one of the plants they use. Every good herbalist knows this, it's cat's claw. Now this has been tested in the lab in Germany, not by us, we don't do bioprospecting, and it does increase the production of white blood cells. In other words, it is, uh, it, it enhances your immune response. And the trios have taken it upon themselves to begin issuing immunostimulating plants and brews throughout the village to, keep, to help keep COVID at bay. Now, this has not been examined in the laboratory. There's no time for that. But this particular uh, uh, plant, cat's claw, this is Ancaria guianensis, and the other species is there as well, um, does stimulate the immune system. So we do know that many of these things do work. And we all suspect that even more of these things work, they just haven't been tested, but that's our problem, not theirs. Next. One last, yes, the cat's claw does look like the coronavirus. This is a doctrine of signatures, which goes back to the origin of human culture. If a walnut looks like a human brain, it's good for a human brain. In the case of cat's claw, it does look like a coronavirus. So good catch on the doctrine of signatures there. Again, one of the interesting things here is what the indigenous peoples know what they and they know the plants they're the master a single shaman and i'll show you one that knows 300 medicinal plants but they know other things as well a great non-timber forest product is honey next and this is my good friend pony and a choreo formerly an uncontacted tribesman pony list 35 different types of honey I made a list. And so when we went to launch a honey project, we sat down with Pony and the other Corios and said, what do you got? So we listed all 35 of them and then found out which ones were stingless, which one produced the most honey, which ones produced the best honey. And we ended up with two species. Next. And we're now marketing the honey and the propolis. So this is a non-tipple forest product, which goes back to the knowledge of people who were isolated not too, too long one. Obviously, we weren't the ones who made the contact. We don't make contact. That was done by the missionaries. We were able to capture their wisdom 
uh, for their own benefit. This isn't something we're in business of or, or the money goes back to them, not to us. Next. And so they set up hives throughout the village, over 100 hives in, in the, the leading village. Next. And this was done uh, by them and for them. Uh, we don't take any patents, we don't take any profits, nothing. It's their wisdom, uh, their resources, their decision, and the monies uh, stay with them 100% as well it should. As I said, uh, people like Liliana and Carolina Hill and Minu have been the spearheads of partnering with tribal women who, in, in my personal experience, have found are sometimes much more conservative in terms of protecting the culture and the knowledge and the plants uh, than, than the men. This is Chaito, who is uh, a female healer in Ayahuasca and a real champion for uh, uh, indigenous rights and, and, and women's rights within the tribal cultures. She is the former president of Asomi, uh, a, a guild of, of female shamans and leaders in the Northwest Amazon. There's more information on our website. Next. And this is Bruce Hoffman, known to many of you. Uh, on the right is Cora Tai, one of our mind shamans of the trios. On the left is Bruce Hoffman, appropriately seated on a giant forest liana. Bruce spent 15 years studying the lianas of the Northeast Amazon. Next. And it culminated in uh, a book which I will show you, The Lianas of the, which is one of the most important botanical works of Amazonia ever done, and it took 15 years to collect everything in flower. This is a cordyceps relative. We wanted to find other non-timber forest products that the Indians didn't know about. And so we brought in a mycologist, Daniel Winkler, who's also a marvelous photographer, check out his website who was able to go through the forest, identify uh, way more mushrooms than the indigenous peoples, and then tell us and them which were medicinal and which were edible. So we're looking for new ways to use the forest to put money in the indigenous uh, breech glosser pockets um, based on sustainable utilization of the forest. Next. And this is the book that Bruce did, uh, a classic in the genre, admittedly a very small genre but it was designed by Nancy Valise, a very gifted designer from Suriname, and it's a feast for the eyes and the botanical soul and heart as well. Next. So to wind up, uh, I was recently asked to write an editorial from the New York Times about what is the medicinal potential of Amazonia going forward. Next. As I said, a single shaman, and here he is, a machine of the trios that Bruce and I've worked with for decades, may know and use over 300 different species for medicinal purposes alone. Next. But what I pointed out in the editorial is we need to get beyond the archetype of just the shaman uh, walking with the ethnobotanist, with, with her or his plant press, that the medicinal potential of Amazonia far exceeds just plants used by indigenous or semi-indigenous peoples. Poisons needs to be a big factor. We all know about poison dart frogs. We all know that, that these frogs are uh, possessors of incredibly uh, toxic compounds. We now know that some of them come from insects they eat. Uh, I was once asked what it's like to work with shaman to try and figure out what's, what's the ultimate mystery. And I said, well, it's like opening a tiny magic box 
looking for the answer to the mystery and finding another box inside. And you open it up, it's another box. You open it and finally you get to the, down to the smallest possible box. And you open it up and there's another box inside. So this whole issue of, of better understanding of, of nature uh, is, is endlessly fascinating. I mean, you guys know about the plant with the fungus, with the virus, one of the thermophiles in Yellowstone Park, they found out that when they tried to grow it in plantation, it wasn't resistant to heat like it was at Yellowstone. And they found out that it lacked a fungus. It was growing inside in its natural habitat. So they got the fungus and they tried it. It didn't work because the fungus had to have a virus living inside of it. That's my magic boxes. Same thing with the poison dart frogs and same thing with many other things we're gonna be finding. Next. And here's one of the coolest examples of all. This is Piri Piri, the famous contraceptive sedge from the Western Amazon. For decades, ethnobotanists have been reading about this contraceptive sedge, which is kind of weird because sedges are, are, are pretty inert. There's not much chemistry in them. Next. But the indigenous peoples are reporting, no, they're good for lots of things. They're good for, 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 for contraceptives. They're good for hand-eye co uh, coordination. Next, and here's who solved the mystery. Glenn Shepard, another great uh, ethnobotanist that we're gonna be hearing from, I hope. And here he is juggling after eating piri piri. And the answer is that piri piri is a sedge and sedges are chemically inert, but these were infected by a fungus related to cordyceps, related to claviceps. So it's the box within a box within a box. It ain't just the plants, it's the fungi, it's the frogs, it's the insects, next. And I wanna finish on Chiribiquete, the most important rainforest protected area in the world. Chiribiquete is not only the most important site in terms of size, it's home to flourishing populations of endangered species like jaguars and harpy eagles. It's home to next, uh, more Amerindian art than any other site, thousands and thousands and thousands of paintings uh, found by Professor Schultes himself when he did some of the first scientific exploration of Chiribiquete. Next. And Schultes made it back to Bogota and spent 40 years working with Colombian colleagues to have this set aside as a protected area. Next. And I'm proud to report some good news because we all need good news in this world and particularly in the Amazon. The green blob in the middle is the original borders of Chiribiquete, which was established by Schultes in collaboration with Indirena and other Colombian colleagues. But here's the good news, next. The Amazon conservation team partnered with President Santos, who I showed you earlier, and the indigenous peoples of the Colombian Amazon and the Colombian government to expand Chiribiquete. More good news, next. Chiribiquete was expanded once again, and these were indigenous reserves to the south, and that's kind of a blocking motion to keep the borders of this pristine area away from gold miners, narco traffickers, uh, slavers, loggers, uh, gold miners, and all sorts of other uh, bad actors that are also prevalent in Amazonia. Next. And I'll say this, we are hard at work with our colleagues, with our spiritual advisors to keep at this and maybe even expand it further at some point. So now is no time to give up and pull back.
despite all the threats we face here at home and abroad as well. Next. So I wanna conclude with the scene here. And you look at this and you think, yeah, the Amazon is burning and the Amazon is burning. But guess what? This is Napa, Napa, California. The wine grows, next. And as you look at the burning in Amazonia and you look at the burning in Napa, keep this in mind. The number two cause of carbon being released into the atmosphere is forest destruction, most of which is in the tropics. Next. So when you look at forest burning, don't think it's a faraway problem. This is Northern California. The climate's changing. It's changing in the Amazon. It's changing in California. I sit here in Arlington, Virginia. It's 70 degrees. So these changes are already afoot. Next. And in my book, in my new book, I pointed out the battle against climate change cannot be won in the Amazon, but it can certainly be lost. So we live in a world where what happens overseas affects us at home and vice versa. So all of us who love nature, all of us who realize we have a stake in clean air and clean water have a stake in the Amazon. The shamans have told me on many occasions, when you turn on the TV and you see elephants being killed in Africa, when you go to the movies and you see scenes of the wildlife trade or jaguars being killed in the Amazon, that affects your soul. It's not good for you. Protection of nature is protecting plants, protecting animals, protecting the waters, protecting the spirits and protecting ourselves as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark, for that incredibly rich conversation. And there's, I have so many questions and there's a number of really great questions in the Q&A. Um, I'll start with one um, that was the first question, but it's also one I had more broadly. Um, Maria Fadiman, sorry if I mispronounced that, asked, do you have any advice you would give to students who are inspired by you in your work? And I also wondered more broadly, for all of us who are concerned about this devastation of biological and cultural diversity, what specific action steps do you see can make a difference? Sure. Uh, number one, the, the advice that I give to people is we live in a changing world. I'm 65. When I was growing up, the, the, the work model was you went to job for some company and you worked there for 30 or 40 years, and then you retired with a pension, a watch, and that was it. We don't live in that world anymore. You know, I know doctors out of work, I know lawyers out of work. So this idea that there's any guarantees, uh, I, I reject. And what better study than uh, liberal arts, of which to me, ethnobotany is the ultimate liberal arts education, because you gotta know some botany and you gotta know some anthropology and you gotta know some economics and you gotta know some language, you gotta know some cultures. So what I can do is give you some sort of a gold ticket. If you just go to, uh, a Harvard or Oxford or Tulane and get a degree in ethnobotany, you'll live happily ever after. But I will say this, any education that forces you to learn a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff is gonna put you in good shape going into the world and the uncertainty we face. So that's my advice. And I will say this about uh, fellow ethnobotany nerds, um, that I'm a great believer in joint masters because ethnobotanists tend to fall in two categories. There's people that, that are primarily botany oriented and people that are primarily culture oriented. So if you do a, a, a culture 
an anthro master's with a, with a business master's or an MPA, uh, you'll be out in three years, won't have as much crushing debt, and will be much more employable. Schulte's always complained to me the problem with science, it was run by scientists like him who never had any management training. And so that the, the idea of understanding how to manage uh, is ultimately uh, to your benefit. So in terms of, but, but how to make a difference? Again, I mean, I wish there was some, some easy way to do it, but if it was easy, it already would have been done. The, there's a saying in Suriname, to every complicated question, there is an answer which is both simple and wrong. The, the point here being that we need to keep in mind because we live in uh, as, as, as politicized an age, politicized a week as I've ever lived through. Here's the deal. Remember this, environmentalism in the States was invented by the Republicans, Teddy Roosevelt. The most important environmental president we ever had was Teddy Roosevelt. The number two most important environmental president was Richard Nixon. Endangered Species, Marine Mammal Act, clean air and clean water was never a partisan issue. So Joe Biden, to his eternal credit, in my view, made two lovely statements on the Amazon. Not many people heard him, but it, was, it wasn't prompted. It wasn't like somebody said, hey, Joe, say something about the Amazon so you can get the ethnobotanist vote, all seven of us. Uh, but we need to get to a point where it doesn't matter whether you're an evangelical Christian or an anti-fi atheist. Uh, I, I think most of you know where I come down on this. Uh, you need to have your politicians wanting to protect the environment. And uh, I did a, uh, I participated in, in a wonderful documentary a few years ago called uh, Living in the Future Past with, with Jeff Bridges, the dude who is on our board of directors, fortunately. And the idea was to, to, to get this message across, which is uh, you had an evangelical Christian who used to be in Congress. You had uh, General Wesley Clark, former head of NATO. And they all said the same thing. Guys, we need medicine when we're sick. We need clean air. Nobody wants climate change. And that's the way it should be. And we've allowed people to demonize us who care about this. Oh, we're just a bunch of left-wing tree hunters. And many of us are. Guilty as charged. But we got to get past this. And, and, and list potential advocates of Bills and Bridges, the evangelical Christian community has a lot of political power. And if you can frame this in terms of the, the Bible, which we've done in the past, you have some new and very powerful and important allies. Well, and there's some, some questions that follow specifically on that around, because I was struck when you were talking about the importance of building partnerships between the different groups down there. And Joanna asked if you could talk about how you developed healer coalitions and the challenges that were associated with that. And she continued, during my ethnobotanical research in Guatemala, I found it difficult to organize healers and shamans together. So this is the same thing, helping form partnerships across differences. Yeah, a seminal event in the history of the Amazon conservation team was the first shamans gathering, where we invited shamans from seven cultures. Uh, they never met, but they're all ayahuasqueros. So ayahuasca was kind of the common denominator. And uh, it, it worked like a charm and that resulted in some of the protected areas that I talked about. So that one actually proved to be quite easy. Another thing that we found is, uh, you know, men are men everywhere. And sometimes it's a lot easier to get women of different cultures to work together. And I'll give you an example. I was in the Mirati Parana with Carolina, the director of our Northwest Amazon and uh, the wife of the chief of the Yukunas, which is one of Schulte's favorite tribes, called us over and she said, look, there's two other uh, groups living here and they're always fighting. She says, but we're women. 
we're all about our kids. You know what? If these idiots can't get it together, talk to us. We'll make this happen. So, you know, I, I started talking about the ancient world. Uh, remember Lysistrata? Uh, how the women got the men together? So, you know, uh, the, 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 the simple concept here is to look for, look for the unlocked door, look for the open window. And if the front door ain't open, keep knocking, keep trying. Sometimes it's working with the kids, sometimes they're working with the shamans, sometimes it's working with the church. You know, you take your allies where you can find them. So I, I, just one interesting aspect of that. We have partnered with the Catholic Church in uh, Suriname, and we have fought with the Catholic Church in Colombia. So this idea that, you know, the military is this, or the church is this, or all missionaries are bad, or all missionaries are good, that's too simplistic. Yeah. Um, not, and, and I could say a lot more about that. I want, do you, can you stay on for a few more minutes to answer some of the more questions? I'm not going anywhere. Okay, so before, for those of you who do have to sign off, there is a coupon code um, for a 30% discount for Mark's most recent book. And we will share that in the follow-up email. So if you do have to leave, um, that will be coming. But I'd love to yeah, continue. Let me repeat the website because I know some people are asking in the chat thing. It's amazonteam.org and markplotkin.com. And you know, I mean, I'm not that hard to find if you have some other questions. Uh, you can always go through ABC. Um, but to stick with what you're talking about, women, there were a number of comments and questions about your, when you said that women made different kinds of maps. And if you could talk some about that, what you noticed. Well, the breakdown that we all know is that in these tribal cultures, men do most of the hunting and women do most of the agriculture. So it's not surprising that if you, I mean, I'll give you a, a concrete example. This is my first book, Tales for Shaman's Apprentice. I asked uh, one of the shaman's apprentices, how many types of cassava they grew? And he said, well, I'm cassava, we, we grow cassava. Said, no, how many types, how many varieties, how many forms, how many varieties? He said, cassava, cassava. And I said, yeah, but I mean, you know, you, you, you have bread cassava, you have beer cassava, that's not the same. He goes, yeah, we have bread cassava, we have beer cassava, and another one. So just an experiment, when we got back from the bush or in the village, I said, can you invite your wife over? Um, I, I, I want to talk to her. So she came in. I said, how many cassavas do you have? She listed 13. So, of course, it's not surprising that people who do most of the, of the agricultural know more about agriculture than the men. But this, again, gets to the idea that not everybody knows everything. That's not true in their culture. It's not true in ours. And what we do need is more female ethnobotanists. And Maria Fatton can talk about this, and I hope we'll have her in the series at some point. But that it's, in, in my experience, it's easier for a woman to work with men and women in these cultures than it is for a male to work with men and women in these cultures. For a variety of reasons, that's another lecture. But we definitely need more women uh, in, in the field, in my opinion. Um, and Nancy Turner, when she speaks next week, next month, let's talk some about that. Um, another good question um, is how you made the jump from field work to to the work that you've been doing for years now with the Amazon conservation team. You know, what what made you realize you couldn't just go study this? Well, it wasn't so much a jump as it was an evolution because prior to COVID, I was still spending time in the field. But I, I could quickly see. I mean, I went down there to, to, to gather up a bunch of names and a bunch of plants, but I could quickly see how fast everything was disappearing. I mean, I, I kind of felt at one point I was in, living in a herd of woolly mammoths because there were 13 great shamans. None of them had apprentices. It had never been 
uh, written down and they were dying in front of my eyes. So I said, I'll write it down. But I always had a secret agenda and my secret agenda was to interest the guys my age in writing it down. Um, so I hired a bunch of guys my age as men. So what's this, what, what was the secret sauce? I paid them. I paid them to work with me as a guide, but they were enchanted by the shaman. So ultimately where people thought I was driving the car, I was actually riding shotgun. And I knew it's human nature that these guys would teach their grandsons and granddaughters secrets they wouldn't teach me. I, I, I never thought otherwise. But once they realized the value of the stuff and once they saw that, uh, that, 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 there was, that, that it worked, but the missionaries had taught them it didn't, they cottoned on to it. And I'll, I'll tell one story. When you're ready to conclude, I'll tell the best story of all, but I don't want to, I want to save that to the end. So you tell me when, but I'm not in any hurry. Okay, well, I have one question, then maybe we can conclude. I'm, I'm struck by how, you know, when you're talking, deep, clearly you have a deep affection, love for this people, the people of the place of the Amazon. And so often there's that relationship and then this needs to get translated into use. You know, we need to save the Amazon for the use of it because, but we don't talk about saving our home because it's useful or our children because they're useful. And so I'm just curious what you think about that, what gets lost in that translation. And yeah, I, if there's another way to do it, can we talk about it? Not just in- I've written about this extensively. I think that conservation is first and foremost, not a utilitarian exercise, should not be a utilitarian exercise. It should be a spiritual and ethical exercise. And this is how you partner with evangelical Christians or Muslims for that matter, uh, as we've done in Suriname on some of these issues. And that is we shouldn't try and save stuff because it might be the cure for cancer. We should save it because it's there, because it is. And that gets back to the point I was making about the shaman say, when you see an elephant being killed on TV, it's bad for you. That's a spiritual thing. It's not because elephants are gonna teach us how to cure cancer. It's that we're all in this together and this stupid, I mean, I've had this argument with people who said, well, you know, evolution is natural, extinction is natural. And I said, yeah, well, I don't wanna live in a world populated only by pigeons and cockroaches. Okay, I like living in a world with whales and jaguars and tigers and lions. And that's ultimately the goal that I think all of us environmentalists are striving for. But I know that when you're dealing with hard pressed decision makers uh, in governments, often in, in developing governments, they wanna know what the value of it is. Because as long as they see conservation as just a write off and a sacrifice, we're gonna fail. And ultimately, these decisions need to be made by the indigenous peoples themselves. Uh, telling people what to do doesn't work. It doesn't work with tribal colleagues. It doesn't work with uh, government people. It doesn't work with your kids. So it has to be about helping indigenous and other peoples make informed decisions. It's not about telling them what's good for them. And that ultimately has to be the message. And it's not always going to work. But let me tell you what, in my 38 years of experience working with these cultures, when they're making informed decisions, a lot more of them are making what we would think of the right decisions than it would be if it was just people waving money and, and, and material goods in their face. And that's the hard part, is to, is to bring people along, gain their trust, and, and help them deal with the outside world on their own terms. That is the ultimate environmental ethnobotanical mission. Mm -hmm. um, then there's several questions that draw on some of those. Uh, I'm not going to do it. One or two more. Okay. So, um, 
Fabian Schultz was asking, um, what is your the best way to react when facing distrust or reluctance when conducting field work, field work with indigenous communities, despite working with local collaborators? Um, so when you, how do you have you worked to develop that trust, you know, authentic trust, not kind of. In my experience, these people uh, are very good at reading people and, and that's, they don't work with contracts. I mean, they did in the, in the recent past, so they gotta be good at sizing people up. Now people make mistakes. And also, you know, I, I painted rather a Pollyanna-ish view here. I grew up watching Tarzan movies where you go into the village and you pound your chest and say, take me to your leader. Every ethnobotanist worth her or his salt has gotten knocked on their ass. Every one of them, okay? So the idea that it's just some sort of straight line, you go there and you win their trust and you live happily ever after and you, you, you get your face painted and you on the fire, bullshit. Everybody in this field has been let down, has been betrayed, uh, has, has made mistakes, but that's the human condition. And I believe if you're coming at it with a good heart and persistence and, 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 and humor, which I learned from Schultes, and luck, never underestimate the importance of luck, you'll succeed, but not always. It's just like this idea, and this goes back to this career question, you know, how do you, you know, this, this whole idea, just follow your dream, bullshit. I know plenty of people that followed their dream that got knocked on their ass and didn't get up, or at least didn't get up and follow their dream. You always need to have a plan B. So uh, always be prepared for things, never to go linear, especially working with other cultures or tribal cultures. And the idea that you just bond with these people and live happily ever after, or you're never let down, or they don't sign a stupid contract, or they put in a stupid road, it happens. But ultimately, you want to do the right thing. I mean, whether you're an ethnobotany or anything else, and ultimately, in most cases, you'll prevail, not always. Mm -hmm. um, great. Now maybe you can tell that story. Okay, here's my concluding story. And of course, in ethnobotany, which is in shamanic tradition, a complete circle and it never ends. I had worked for years and years and years in a village in South Suriname. And it was very challenging because the chief was a fundamentalist Christian. I mean by the book, and there was one book, and that was the Bible. And I was surrounded by all of these ancient shamans, but I was able to gain his trust, or his permission at least, to work with the shamans. And I retell that story in detail in Tales for Shamans and Friends, which I won't repeat. But I will tell a story which I've never published, which is after 10 years of this, I was in the village, and I was working with two fabulous people, Silviano Camberos, a Mexican physician who grew up with the Huicholes in Mexico, and Luis Poveda, who's one of the few ethnobotanists slash herbalists. And so we were doing one of our little workshops and round tables and interviewing the shamans and the chief came in. And the chief never came in when I was talking to the shamans. This is not done, so this is a big deal. And he says, quiet everybody. He says, I have uh, a question. And, and everybody said, yes, sir. Uh, and he said, your friend from Costa Rica knows medicinal plants. He said, my granddaughter here is constipated and we took her to the missionary clinic and they ran out of medicine. So the child is really suffering. Could your friend from Costa Rica uh, uh, find a plant to help my, my, my grandchild? Poveda said, uh, and he says, there's one growing right behind the hut we use in Costa Rica. So he gave it to her and the chief came the next day and he said, it was a miracle, it was great, you know, perfect. Thank you so much. He says, 
but I was out hunting this morning and, you know, I held the shotgun along and I, 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 I got this bruised shoulder and uh, I wonder if your friend knows anything for that. And Coeva uh, says, of course, I've got this great plant. It's right on the trail up by the village. I, I, let me go get it. And one of the shamans stands up and he says, no. He says, I've had it with this banana kitty. I could have fixed that grandchild and I can fix your shoulder. Let me get you my plant, which is our plant, which is our ancestor's plant. So he goes off and makes a potion. The next day, the chief comes in and goes, everybody quiet down. I have an announcement. He says, the medicine worked. He said, that is a forest made by God. And our job as God's children is to protect that forest, honor those traditions, use those plants. That is the work of God. And I looked at him and I said, hallelujah, chief, amen. The chief said, everybody can use all these plants for everything. And you two guys over there, Koita and Kamanya, you're to work with this banana carry pointed at me. And he says, I want all this stuff written down. I want it in our language and we will use it for the rest of our future going forward. That's 12 That's years worth paying off right there. Wow. That's great. Thank you. Individ Thanks, keep everybody. Things Thanks make for the opportunity. So hopefully we can reconvene in, in the real chair that you see behind me at a future date when everything calms down. So I hope that everybody is safe and well. I encourage everybody to support the American Botanical Council. There's nothing like it. And I will say this, that I was, I had the honor several years ago presenting an award from an herbal society to uh, Mark Blumenthal. And I pointed out that if Hippocrates and Jim Duke and Groucho Marx had had a baby, it would have been Mark Blumenthal. So the lesson to take from that is that technology and nature hold many answers and that we need to protect both for the benefit of all of us. So thank you guys, onward, ciao. Thank you so much. So I just wanted to share with everyone, oh sorry. Here's the, the coupon code um, for the 30% discount and it's Oxford University Press website and the coupon AAFLYG6, all caps. And we will share that, as I said, um, in a follow-up email. And thank you again for joining. Thanks. Lots of uh...